I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's not who they said was going to be here. That's not who they said. Listen, I got a phone call this week uh, from uh, Pastor David, and he said, hey, could you uh, pinch hit for me? And I'm like, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm honored, but it does feel like you're, you know, pinch hitting for Babe Ruth, right? It feels like, it's like, come on. And then, so I'm actually the substitute for the substitute. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Good. Good. Uh, it's Father's Day. You probably noticed I have my Father's Day shoes on. Huh? Yep. These are a gift. Used to get ties. Now I get bright white shoes. I love it. They're trying to keep me current and it's, uh, it's all good. Hey, listen, uh, Todd did such a great job um, I, I, with, with recognizing fathers and it's so true what he said. Uh, what I'd like us to do though, um, every man in this room, boy in this room, uh, whether you're a dad or you're not a dad, you will be a father figure to somebody. And I, I say that with all sobriety. Uh, it's a very serious thing. And so just to start the message today, which is not a Father's Day message, um, I was going to ask, you don't have to do anything except stand where you are, and I just want to pray over you. Okay, so on the count of three, stand. Three. Sorry, I'm dealing with a bunch of guys. Just tell us what to do. Okay, okay, good. Listen, um, if you're a uh, mom and you're holding a baby that is a male, you stand too. Okay. This is not a political thing. This is not a our culture is messed up thing. This is a you men uh, have a target on your back. As soon as you walk out that door, the world is trying to get between you and your spouse you and your wife. The world is trying to get in your head and pollute your head. And what our enemy knows that as men go, the church goes. And it does not mean to minimize anything. It just means in order. And so, men, I want to pray for you. And uh, if you'd bow your heads, uh, ladies, let's pray for them as well. Let me pray. Father, for the men and boys who are standing right now. Lord, if you choose to bless them with children, I pray, Father, you would allow them to be good fathers, that they would parent their kids like you parent them. Uh, Father, that they would show much grace, much love, much instruction, much support, that you would allow them to be wise when they lead. Father, that you would give them sensitivity and compassion towards their children, that you would give them uh, the ability to even supernaturally understand what goes on in the life of a child. Uh, but Father, help them to be kind, to be gentle, and to be fierce, and to be those people that can be trusted in difficult times. Give them tenacity. Give them bravery. Uh, Father, give them the ability to cut between things that are foggy and things that are true and right. Um, but Father, I pray as much as anything, you would allow us as men to walk well with you so that our families and those who are observing might see us and follow you. Father, we know we are not perfect. We know, Father, that we stumble in many ways, but Lord, you are the perfect Father, and we want to copy you as much as we possibly can. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. And all the people said... Let's thank God for our, our, uh, our men.
So uh, we are in the last of a four-part series. This is, this is number four. And uh, listen, we'll, we'll get you out of here in time for lunch. But I, what this is, is it's a, if you've ever heard the book of Jude preached through, like we have the last month, then um, you would be unique because most of us look at it and go, 25 verses, is that even worth my time? And let me tell you that it is worth your time. And uh, Pastor Michael has unpacked this really for the last three weeks. Again, this is the last. We're just covering two verses. He has covered 23 in that time. But there's several things that we have learned and that we'll be, we'll be kind of talking about this morning. The first thing that we have learned, and you can, this is free, this is by way of introduction, is that theology matters. What you believe about God actually matters. You think, well, of course it matters. No, hear what I'm saying. If you believe that God is waiting for you to screw up so that he can punish you, you will interact with him in a certain way. More than likely, you will do your best to hide from him. More than likely, you will convince yourself that he doesn't already know your sin. And you do your best to convince he's just waiting to make your life miserable. And you'll behave that way. If, on the other hand, you believe that God is a permissive parent who says, uh, you know what, smiles and throws her hands up and says, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, they're young, let them have their fun. If you believe God winks at our sin, you're going to behave a certain way. If you believe what Scripture says about both of those extremes and that, no, there is grace and there is works, and grace drives works, drives grace, drives work. If you believe that, then you're much more likely to not live a life of ups and downs, dramatic ups and downs. You're much more likely to grow in your faith. So theology matters. I'm not talking about what color the carpet should be in the worship center or what kind of music we should play or what we should wear on the platform or where we should go to camp. I'm talking about the deep things, the deep theological truths and so Jude spends really the first 23 verses, and we, we're not going to review them all. But I want to start with this illustration. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, I was in, at that time, we called them, uh, what, Bible fellowships, or, or life groups, excuse me, life groups. Our connect groups, your Sunday school, whatever. We had small groups, and had a, there was probably 15, 20 of us in there, and our spouses and so forth, and our uh, one of the guys in there who was really greatly loved, everybody liked this guy. Um, I like him, still do, liked him a lot then. Um, and he was funny, he was fun, he was always there, quick-witted, um, seemed to be genuinely loving towards everybody. It came to my attention, again, I wasn't looking for this, it came to my attention that things were really terrible in his home. They were terrible with his wife. It seemed like he was doing everything he could possibly do to ruin his marriage. And so when I met with him, uh, first of all, like you, I was like, uh, I really wish I didn't know this. I much prefer the buddy I can talk about muscle cars and, and the ball game with, and we can talk about Jesus and have a great time together. That's the friend I wanted. But now that I know this information, what am I supposed to do with it? And what I, I did what many of you might do is I procrastinated. Okay, Y'all wouldn't do that. I'll just, let, me, let me confess to you. I see those looks. 
Okay, I procrastinated. I don't want to talk to him about it because who wants to get in somebody else's junk, their business? I don't want to do that. You know, do I even have the right to? And I did all these mental gymnastics and I finally realized, look, I got a brother in Christ who is about to make a dramatic mistake. Maybe he already has. I know it. A couple other guys know it. Why are we sitting on our hands? We got to go talk to him. And so I waited a little longer, and every time I was with him, I thought, I gotta, I can't even enjoy this conversation until we talk about this hard thing. Very long story short, it, it ended up going great. I went with a brother, we talked to him, weeping and gnashing of teeth and repentance, and it ended up being a great, great thing. But what I wanted to talk to him about was not what I could until we got past the hard stuff. Does that make sense? Jude is the same way. This whole book has been about a guy who wants to talk about fun stuff. In verse 3, he simply says, hey, you know what? I really wanted to talk. It says, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I can't. I got to talk to you about some hard things. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, and we've said it for three weeks, to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. Well, we move on. So he's, he's writing a note, a letter. It was really a note, you know, 25 verses. You guys have written thank you notes longer than that, I'm sure. But Jude 15 through 19 is this masterful, and we're getting to 24. 15 through 19 is this masterful expose on what false teachers look like. Okay, this is all review. Here's what false teachers look like. Here's how they operate. Here's their motives. He, he talks about, this is great, Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to be in company with Sodom and Gomorrah. About fallen angels, which is a pretty cool study, by the way. Cain, Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion. Did you know about those things? They're worth looking up. He talks about shepherds who don't feed their flock. Who He says it this way, they only feed themselves. He talked about grumblers, about fault finders. And here's what he says by these illustrations. Here's what he talks about, and it's, it's gut-wrenching for me because I see myself in some of these things. And I think, if you're honest, you might see yourself. So let me run a couple of them past you. They see pride. He said, the typical false teacher is going to there's a lot of pride. It's like, ugh, I struggle with pride. He says, there's selfishness in these false teachers, like, oh, I've been selfish once or twice this morning, okay? There's jealousy, oh, I want what they have. There's greed, I want more of what you've already given me. There's disregard for God's will, there's lust for power. And if I am completely honest with you, which I'm assuming you would expect that, some of those things are uh, present in my life, maybe in little bitty bits. Usually when I think of it, you may be this way too. Usually I think about these kinds of things and I examine my motives and so forth uh, on the off chance that I don't just collapse when I get into bed. So if I have any time at all, my mind drifts towards, am I doing this right? Am I doing this well? Is God pleased with my life? Did I get caught? Have I ever thought that? It's a good day because I didn't get caught. Oh, come on, Really? is a good day because I didn't get caught. So I look at this and I think, gosh, am I, am I a false Christian? Am I? And then he goes on to the next three verses, 20 through 23, and he says, listen, here's how you can push back against heresy. 
Heresy is just bad doctrine, right? Stay with me. And he says this, Pastor Michael covered it last week. He said, he said, here's how you can do it. You build yourself up in your faith. Okay. Build yourself up in your faith. Spend time in God's word, et cetera. That's, that's good news. Keep yourself in God's love. You ever find yourself not, I'm sure you may know people like this. It isn't you, but you may know people that don't really give a lot of love. Oh, they're great on doctrine, but they're just mean. Okay? He says, no, no, no. Keep yourself in God's love. Wait for the Lord to bring eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Don't judge them. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire. Show mercy to other people. And so the first 23 verses are just heavy. But there's good news. We're on the last two, and the last two, it's like let the sun shine in, right? It's the last two are the morning breaks, and we see God's glory, and it's called uh, the doxology of this book, the doxology, because the Greek word doxa, um, it, it just means glory. But uh, Jude, the book of Jude, uh, grab that Bible in front of you or turn your Bible on and find Jude. We're looking at if you get, go to Revelation, everybody kind of seems to know where that is, the last one, last book of the Bible. And then just don't even turn the page, just look across the page because it's the end of Jude is what we're after. So if you got it, say got it. If you got it, say got it. All right, let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. Y'all just follow along with me. This is Jude chapter 1, 24, uh, verses 24 and 25. Now, which is a big word. To him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. And everybody said, you may be seated. Fantastic. That is a doxology. That is a praise, but it's more than, more than a praise. That doxology uh, is a confession. We sang one, Man of Sorrows, the fourth, the fourth uh, what, verse, stanza? What, I'm not a music guy. The fourth rotation. Uh, whatever. That's a, that was a doxology. It was declaring praise to God and his attributes. That's a doxology. There's a, a bunch of doxologies in Scripture. Now, you may have grown up in a different... Um, tradition than we have here. And one of those traditions that uh, while I didn't grow up in church uh, at all, on occasion I would go because though we never really went to church, my mom would speak of church well. And I thought, well, it's important to mom, not important enough to go, but it is important to my mom. And so those times, seldom as they were, that I was in trouble with my mom, I'd say, hey, mom, you know, it's Saturday. What do you say we go to church tomorrow? Because I thought, well, if I'm going to be in trouble with my mom, uh, maybe God will get me out of it. It's kind of what I thought. And, and actually, sure enough, uh, my plan worked. And so every time we would go, all of a sudden, I was back in good with my mother. But we would always go to a church where their tradition was they either sang or said the doxology. And I thought it was the only one around, the doxology. And here's how it goes. No, I will not sing it. Thank you for asking. Here's what it says. And you, you'll sing it when I say it. Some of you go, oh, yeah. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise ye above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Okay. We did it, right? And it was great. And I remember being so, thank you for that, thank you. I remember being so comforted by that. Why? Because it gives hope. Praise God from, God is the author of our blessings. That's, that's where our blessings flow. We're going to praise him. Thank you, Lord. And it changes our attitude. This doxology that we see at the end of Jude, if there was a greatest hits doxology, this would be number one. Uh, according to version rather, and online searches, when you type in doxology, please don't do it now. I'm preaching. I'm talking. Put your phones away. But if you type that in, in doxologies, this one will usually come up. These two verses will come up as the doxology. Okay, you're getting smarter. I can feel you getting smarter uh, already. But this doxology, I think the reason that it is so popular is because the popularity of anything has, has two components, the actual thing and the people who make it popular. Make sense? I mean, the, the reason uh, Bing Crosby's White Christmas is the biggest selling song in history of the United States, right? I guess at least it was up until the 80s. I don't know what you people listen to, but it was. Well, the reason is because there was something so soothing about that. It was, number one, it was a great song, but it's so soothing. It's my point. This doxology, same thing. Great words, but there's something remarkably soothing um, about it. And it gives us three uh, truths. Three truths. That's all we're going to do. Two verses, three truths. Two of the truths happen in, the, in verse 24. And... Uh, Let's, uh, let's read this. First, consider this. Uh, number one, for those of you taking notes, our present preservation. He protects us from stumbling. Think, oh, praise the Lord. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling. So the way I say this is he holds us up. He holds us up. We're standing and he protects us from stumbling. Now, um, please hear me say this. When I first became a Christian, I got some wonky theology some very wonky theology. And this verse was used to tell me that the safest place physically for anybody is in the center of God's will. You ever heard that before? The safest place is in the center of God's will. That means if you are following Christ and you are in the middle of God's will, then nothing can touch you. Okay? That is not true. It's not even remotely true. If it were true then God owes an apology to the tens of thousands, if not millions, of Christian martyrs who lost their lives in the center of God's will. Nine, uh, ten of the twelve or nine of the eleven, however you want to dance, uh, of the disciples were killed, lost their lives. Were they not in the center of God's will? That family who was hit head on by a drunk driver, they're not in the center of God's will? Here's why I say that is because it can be disillusioning to a believer who hasn't grown past the idea that God is our uh, fairy godmother who protects us from all harm. I'm not suggesting that he can't. What I am saying, though, is to presume upon God that you, if I follow him, Lord, if I follow him, if I pursue him, if I'm praying all the time, he's my good luck charm. That is not how that works. And if we can get past that, we understand that 
the security that comes from being in the center of God's will isn't physical. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. How about a God who says, I won't let you stumble in your faith? How about that? doesn't mean you won't sin. That's not even remotely the case. But I won't let you stumble. I won't let you lose your faith if there's a sincerity if you're pursuing him. Okay? Now, this is great. And for those of you that are new to Baptist land, I want to I read a... Uh, I want to read a verse. It's John 10, 27. And this is where we get once saved, always saved. Have you ever heard that? Raise your hand. You just, I just said it. Did you not hear me? Once saved, always saved. Okay, great. Thank you. This is going to be harder than I thought. Here's what the Bible says. I think it's up on the screen or it's getting there, right? My sheep, that's you and me, hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish eternally. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay? Once saved. Once somebody gives their life to Jesus, they are saved. Now, you, you may sit there like I did for years and sit there and go, yeah, okay. All right. We got dozens of kids at VBS give their life to Christ. We'll see. We'll see. Got students giving their lives to Christ at camp getting baptized. We'll see. We'll kind of see. I've been around long enough to know that not everybody who who gets saved is going to follow through. Okay. How arrogant do we have to be to sit with our arms crossed and going, eh, we'll see if it works out. Are you joking? We have, and I'll say it right in front, we got students here who've given their lives to Jesus. Now, none of us would ever say that out loud. I'm not suggesting we would. Y'all have more couth than that. But we would sure think it would go, yeah, we'll see. Now, we understand the principle in Matthew about thorny ground and rocky ground and good soil. We get that. But here's our obligation to anybody who gives their life to Jesus. In church family, I'm saying this to all of us. Our obligation is to surround them with encouragement, with accountability in the best sense, with a place to belong. That is our, that is what, to, to challenge them in scripture, to teach them how to share their faith, to teach them how to pray. Th- that's what we are to do. To teach them how to interact meaningfully with the Bible, okay? So many people, quote unquote, fall away or they put God on the back burner because we didn't do what we're supposed to do. It's not our fault. Everybody's responsible. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? I'm used to teaching much smaller crowds that tell me when they hear me. You hear what I'm saying? It's important that we know that and, and we celebrate. We never lose that, that excitement when somebody begins their journey of faith, okay? Because remember this. Remember, that salvation experience didn't happen to make a bad kid good, a bad man a good man. That's not why it happened. It, it made a dead man a live man, a dead kid a live kid. That's what it's for. Thank you for clapping for that. Everybody join her because that's worth clapping for. That's what we do. And we don't know what somebody goes home to. I'm ranting. I feel like I'm ranting. Well, I just go with me. We don't know what, we're, what somebody's going home to 
that drive some behavior. We don't know that they're going home, they're not going home to a war zone, to incredibly unhealthy scenario. And let's be honest, our environment shapes us quite a bit. And so what I'm saying is, is we, when somebody gives their life to faith, we surround them, we love them, and do all we can. And more than likely, that person is going to grow in their faith, more than likely. Either way, we celebrate, we don't sit in judgment, and we do it. Okay, end of rant. You're welcome. Okay, good. Here's the second truth that I want you to hear. Our future presentation. He will make us pure when we stand before Him. Here's why this is important, uh, boys and girls. Here's why this is important. This is the future of every single one of you. You think, what, what? This is the future of every single person who names the name of Jesus, and actually who doesn't, but that's another sermon, who names the name of Jesus, they will stand before God. Okay? And if you're like me, who in the first 23 verses of this chapter are worried about my own selfishness, my own arrogance, um, you know, all of these things that are going, because I have a little bit of that in me, just like you do, you're worried about it, here's the great news. The great news is it doesn't even matter how crummy you are. What matters is that He is able to clean us up. He's able to clean us up figuratively speaking, positionally speaking, meaning this, don't glaze over. You still with me? Okay, that's a pretty good average, right? Pretty good percentage. We're able to, uh, able to do it positionally, meaning we're perfect. Positionally, we're still crummy, stinking sinners who, who do things. Every, but Jesus has covered us. But then also, y'all, we are at some point, at some point, we're going to be like Jesus. He will present us faultless before God. You know, about seven months, I can't do math, last October, last October, uh, my son married his fiance. That's how that works. He asked her. She said, yes, I'm doing the ceremony. I'm trying to keep my, myself together with this ceremony. And uh, Matt, his father-in-law, uh, walks down, current father-in-law, Matt and Bailey, Bailey's his fiance, I'm up here with my son. They walk down, Matt comes right in front of me, this is all part of the, part of the design, comes right in front of me, and I said what I'm supposed to say, right? Are we crazy? What are we doing? No, I didn't say that. What I said is, who gives this woman to be married? And Matt... Her father says, her mother and I do, steps back, puts their arms together, and then they're standing right in front of me. And it's surreal. It's just, it's amazing. And so we walk through the ceremony. And here's the thing, you know, the bride walking down, I mean, she is makeup upped and her hair is perfect in the dress. There's no, it's flawless. And even if she wasn't, she's perfect for my son. My son doesn't see, he's like, She's perfect. Her father presents her to Grayson without blemish, without stain. We all know that she isn't perfect. What's interesting about that is in the United States, the center of attention in every marriage, especially in the Western countries, the center of attention is a bride or the groom. Which one? The 
the bride, of course, always. And it maybe has a little to do with the fact that she's been planning this day since she was 12, okay? And the guy started planning the afternoon of the wedding, okay? And so, but it's the center of attention. She's wearing white, everything. Everybody pivots when the bride comes in. I've done weddings, right? And when she walks in, people, it just, and it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do want to give you a much different description of what a first century wedding was like. And the reason I'm doing this is I think it'll make the New Testament come a little bit more alive, make a little bit more sense. And I will rush through it so that you can both remember it and get to lunch, okay? Here we go. Here's this is uh, the first step is the proposal. Dads, listen to this. It's great. Here's what happened back in the day. This is so good. It wasn't the groom asking the bride. You know who it was? Both dads. It was both dads getting together saying, hey, you know, I got a son. You got a daughter. Maybe we can work this out. I mean, this is it's just so, so good. I don't endorse it, of course. Of course. But then step two is there's payment. Okay, the groom's father goes to the bride's father and says, hey, you know, what will it take to get this done? A couple of sheep, a donkey, I don't know what all's involved, um, but that's, uh, that's good. And I, I, I probably would have lowballed, I don't know. She's great, but, but I'm pretty cheap. Then the third step is there's this promise, there's this, there's this betrothal. Now, that'll sound familiar to you, betrothal. And that is the ceremony where it said, hey, listen, you guys are married, but... You don't, can't live together and you can't consummate the marriage, right? I'm like, what's the point? But the point is that we start to see the, the perfect illustration of this is who? Joseph and Mary, right? They're betrothed, so they are legally together. They're legally married, but he still had to go. Step five, he still had to go prepare a place for her. Sound a little familiar? He had to go prepare a place for her. Then step six is now this big announcement. Uh, once he got this place that he prepared for her, once he got it done, then he got to go get his woman. Okay? He got to go get her. And, and here's the way it looked like. The bride didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. She had to stay alert and wait for the bridegroom, for the groom. She didn't know. Back in the day, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago, maybe it still happens, they, it's, it's a little bit of a game. The bridesmaids help her get ready for the groom to show up, but they don't know when. And then, if you're a Bible scholar, which I know most of you are, you're thinking of Matthew 25, aren't you? Sure you are. Because that's the story of Jesus coming to get his bride in a similar fashion. Then the step seven is this. Step seven is they have a party. They have a party. Do you remember the first miracle in the Bible? Just say yes. Just go with it. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course you do. It's the wedding at Cana. And you think, who, who, what knucklehead didn't plan for enough wine at the wedding, right? Well, they'd been going for days. This wasn't a, hey, show up at five, do a ceremony, go to the dance and go home. This was days worth of party, uh, celebrating. Days worth of celebrating. Let's be careful. Days worth of celebrating. Uh, to me, that, I mean, that sounds like a... So there's this process. There's this process for marriage. It's not like, you know, courthouse, justice of the peace, boom. 
It's not. And it's a perfect picture. It's a perfect picture of the Father and the church. We see in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, he did this. Say with me, remember, in your future, you're going to be presented. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. It's right there in the Bible. It's right there. 1 John 3, 2 says this, when we see him, we will be like him. So we will move from being covered in Jesus' perfection to being like him. I think that's a big deal. I think if the Christian understands that theology, there is hope. And in this doxology, with all of the false teachers and all of the terrible things that are going on and all of the things that we see, our hope is that someday you and I, for those who believe in Christ, those who have received Jesus, we're going to stand before God and thank God that it is not based on how good we are. Here's the last thing to consider. Last thing to consider. When we stand, uh, uh, okay, there's two more things. Just give it to me. When you stand before the Lord, we're going to stand before Him as the church. Thinking, okay, as the church, great, you can hide. I mean, there's a couple thousand people in this room. Who's going to know? We're stand before as the church, but we're going to stand before individually. He's naming names. He's going to say, however he says it, I won't even talk like God, but he's going to say your name out loud. Your name out loud. Because he knows your name. And he will present, and you will be spotless. That's good theology. That's good theology. And if a believer understands that, then it is truly a doxology of hope. Here's the last thing. His eternal exaltation. Listen, he is the only God who is the Savior. He's the only one. He's not one of many. Psalm 147 says this, and and then we're done. Possibly. Psalm 147, 3 through 5 says this. Who is our God? He's the one. He heals the brokenhearted. He bandages their wounds. He counts the number of stars, and he gives a name to every one of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power, and his understanding is infinite. It is infinite. In a room this size, filled with this number of people, somebody, probably a lot of somebodies, are brokenhearted. Some relationship's gone south. Something's happened. Something that is so strong in your head that you almost can't hear other people when they speak because it demands your attention. He is the God who counts the number of stars. He gives them a name. He is great, vast in power, and his understanding is infinite. He understands. That's the point. Here's a takeaway. In spite of evil circumstances, evil people, we can live with a doxology in our heart. Here's how I say it, because I'm a little bit simple. 
He holds us up. He cleans us up. And he's the only one who can. This morning, you may have been drugged here. You may have had to come. It's Father's Day. Let's make Dad happy. Whatever reason you find yourself here, you may be among those who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's okay. I want to invite you when we're done in here to meet me in the connection suite. I'd just love to introduce you to my Savior. No pressure. Maybe you're here and you saw all these get baptized and you're thinking, man, I want to be a part of a church that is is baptizing people, is energetic, is sending people on mission trips. I'd love to talk to you out there. Me and some staff members would. Maybe you want to get baptized yourself. Well, we can set that up as well. Join the church, any of those things. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would, I just want to pray for you. I won't ask you to do anything. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray, Father, that they would understand the joy that comes just from clinging tenaciously to a faith. Father, I pray again for the men in this room, as difficult as it is to be a dad, to be a father, to carry burdens. Father, you have told us you'll carry our burdens. Father, you've said you're near to the brokenhearted. You've said you will bind our wounds. And Father, after three weeks of hearing about false teachers and how easily they slip in, thank you so much for verse 24 and 25 that says you will keep us from stumbling, that you will clean us up, and that you're the only one who will. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our midst. We love you. We praise you. We ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us today with our church family here at Green Acres Baptist Church. And this invitation is for you. Maybe God is stirring in your heart right now from what you have heard. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe God is calling you right now for salvation. You know, the Bible is very clear that if we uh, confess with our mouth and if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says that you will be saved. And so right now you could pray a very simple prayer and just say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life and save me. If that's you today, we wanna help you and walk with you with this decision. Maybe for others of you, uh, maybe you've been saved, but maybe you've been waiting to get baptized. Uh, Maybe you need to figure out what it means to be a member of our church here at Green Acres. Whatever that decision is, we wanna come alongside you. And so do us a favor. You can fill out the connect card at gabc.org and one of our team members will be with you very shortly. Whatever it is that God has laid on your heart, We want to walk with you in your growth in Jesus Christ. I look forward to hearing from you soon.